The FIR Podcast Network presents FIR on Higher Education with Kevin Anselmo. In each episode, Kevin will share insight and experiences from an interview with a professor, communicator, researcher, administrator, or a journalist, among others. If you're a dean, communicator, marketer, academic, or administrator within higher education, this podcast is for you. And now here's your host, Kevin Anselmo. Welcome to episode number seven of FIR on Higher Education. This is your host, Kevin Anselmo. Thank you very much for taking some time to tune into today's show. Question for you. Have you ever thought about teaching an online course, be it in a university setting or perhaps in a corporate setting? If yes, then you'll definitely want to listen to today's show. My main guest is Eric Schwartzman, who is a longtime friend of the For Immediate Release Network, and he is also a social media instructor, has gone around the world teaching different courses on social media, and has most recently started an interesting company that's focused on social media courses online. In the course of my conversation with Eric, we also talk about the importance of equipping and engaging the entire organization on social media. Here's my interview with Eric recorded on March 17th. So I'm pleased to be joined by Eric Schwartzman. Eric, can you please introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your work and what you're doing with Comply Socially. Well, first and foremost, I am an FIR community member, longtime listener and contributor. And it's a delight to be here with you, Kevin. Thanks for asking me. I am the founder and CEO of Comply Socially, and we help organizations capitalize on the opportunities and manage the risks of social media in the workplace. We do it through on-demand, self-paced, e-learning, courseware, assessment, and certification. Great. And so, as Eric, you mentioned, you know, I, I actually was first aware of you from the FIR community. We met at that bizarre conference in Los Angeles where you were moderating a uh, very interesting panel, to say the least. On... Oh, that was the one where I had the guy who went rogue on the panel. Yeah, exactly. He, had a, he was ready to start a fight, it looked like. No, that guy was just, I don't remember his name, thank God, because we won't mention him on this <laughs> podcast. But the, I'm, 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 I was asked to moderate a panel, and I, and I hadn't met anyone on the panel. And the panel starts and this guy goes rogue. He stands up and he pretty much flips out. Yeah, I mean, he did, didn't he? I was impressed by the way you moderated it all. Um, it was definitely a sight to behold and really interesting for a bunch of, basically it was a conference for communications directors, PR directors, and it was very, in, in, within higher education. So it was very interesting to see how that audience reacted to this whole interplay. But How did they react? I mean, basically it was a guy up there talking about SEO and he was, he was basically, the, the methods he was suggesting were potentially unethical I guess would be a nice way to say it and how were they reacting the higher ed communications folks uh, we all got a lot of humor out of it and you know when you I sometimes just got to take things with a grain of salt and I don't think we got much learning out of that particular panelist but fortunately there were you were moderating there were a couple other people who had some interesting things to say so it wasn't uh you know I guess these kind of things you're just gonna laugh at it at times and I don't just, think just to take you back because this is something you're not aware of so Okay, so put yourself in my position. So I'm asked to moderate this panel. I go, I got this guy who's going rogue. He's freaking out, right? <laughs> then the guy who invited me to moderate the panel slips me a note during the session. I and it, the, note, the note just says, control the panel. <laughs> you, right. And this guy's gone. He like, short of, I mean, he should have just given me some rope and some duct tape would be the only way I could have controlled that panelist. And so basically at that point, I sort of realized, okay, 
you're not in charge of this one. Ride it out and do the best you can. But it was definitely entertainment, and you handled it pretty well. I don't know what I would have done in that situation. And I imagine you haven't had any situations like that since then. Well, I actually had a situation like that this morning. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was at the gym, and I was in the shower after my workout, and an earthquake hit. <laughs> I saw that on Twitter. I didn't Similar even... situation, right? Nothing I can do about it. You're here talking and you uh, look fine and dandy in your office. Well, thank you. I mean, basically the takeaway is, you know, when someone goes rogue at that level and there's nothing you can do about it, relax and float downstream. <laughs> I think it was Van Morrison that said that. <laughs> Good words of wisdom before we even get to the content of the show. This is the fun stuff that people want to hear anyways. <laughs> the reason why I wanted to have Eric on is that I was, I've was i been a long-time listener of his show, which I highly recommend to the FIR community on the record uh, online, and you're also do also shoot a show as well comply socially now correct no 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 i i have uh, on the record online podcast which um many i'm sure people if you're a listener of fir you probably have at one point or another listened to my show and if you're a regular listener then you realize that my show what we cover kind of changes based on whatever it is i'm interested at the time because i realized that if it wasn't based on what I was interested in, I never would have continued. Fair enough. But you still great content, and I'm, I've been a long-time listener. And at the time you were launching Comply Socially, you had a promotion for your uh, online social media trainings. I took advantage of that promotion and actually did a course with a few of my colleagues. And I thought you'd be a great guest to have on because, A, you offer the perspective of social media and how that applies to people within higher education, but also you offer a really unique perspective. You're not a professor, I realize, but you're a, you've been doing a lot of education over the years, and you have, a, I think, a really unique perspective on how to go forward and do online trainings and education. And so I really wanted to pick your brain on that, if that sounds good for you. Sure, let's do it. For starting out, can you talk, I know you've been doing social media trainings for a long time. Can you talk about the genesis for actually doing the same sort of social media trainings that you do in person and doing those online? Well, I can sort of take you through the experience that I had and how I wound up where I am now. Yeah. Well, I founded this company, iPressroom, and iPressroom was the first content management system for PR people to manage the online newsroom in their corporate website. Mm -hmm. And we launched it actually when I was thinking of the idea of launching a site like this that where, where a non-technical person could actually publish content to the web, I told my wife about it. And this was before there was Blogger or before there was YouTube or before there was Facebook. And she said to me, honey, it's a great idea, but rather than do something like a newsroom where corporations have to get involved, can't you just create a site where anybody can upload anything and communicate online? And I said, ah, no, honey, that'll never go over. <laughs> Terrible idea, you know? And then, of course, you know, blogging pops up and Facebook pops up. And, and the moral of that story is listen to your wife because <laughs> she's usually right. But uh, I went ahead and launched iPressroom. We signed some really big clients. We built it up. And I sold that company three years ago. Over the course of keeping that service relevant and current, we had to integrate social networking platforms into iPressroom. And so we integrated Facebook in, we integrated Twitter in, all these services as they popped up, we integrated them in. And so if you've read this book by uh, Malcolm Gladwell, Blink, yep. um, you know, I got my 10,000, or outlier, Outliers rather, the third one, um, I got my 10,000 hours you know, in the trenches 
integrating social media into this platform and that led to consulting opportunities and um, part of that consulting was hey can you help us wrap our head around social media and how do you do that other than train somebody and so I did a lot of classroom training and um, yeah, I'm a hard worker I, I gave it my best shot that led to more referrals and more training and, and I basically was traveling around the world doing these social media boot camps and I think I'm the the longest running continuously uh, held live training social media boot camp I partnered up with the Public Relations Society of America we, we do it all all over the country and then I've been invited to do it in other countries as well and it's sort of a, a standard course that's usually taught to people in marketing or PR and so that's great you know you go around you do these courses but you realize pretty quickly after you start doing these things you know, to get everybody to, to get them on planes, to fly them to a central location, you know, to get enough broadband to sustain 20 plus people at the same time where everyone, you know, suck it down significant bandwidth and where everyone has a different level of digital literacy. Everyone's has a different comfort level with the browsers. Everyone has a different browser installed. It's very difficult to train people in real time. And, you know, you do a one to two day thing, time is really of the essence. You've got, you know, maybe two six hour days to deliver a lot of content, a lot of information. And all it takes is one or two people with an old browser or one or two people who struggle with basic Windows functionality, copy, paste. And there's always one person in the group who can't do that. They wind up holding the class hostage because they need a little extra attention. And you've got people at the top of the scale who, who know most of the stuff. They're maybe going to get one or two things out of the training, but they're going to have to sit through two days to get it. And, and you know, I, any good teacher is trying to teach to the middle of the room, serve most of the people. But this idea of delivering content from the lectern and bringing people through these point-and-click exercises in real time doesn't make a lot of sense. And that becomes clear for, fairly quickly if you're flying, you know, flying all over the place doing these things. Yeah. And so I started to think to myself, wow, you know, there's got to be a better way. You know, what if I could somehow figure out a way to deliver this online? And then I looked into the whole online world. There's basically, you know, two ways of the, well, there's three ways now. There's the MOOC. Yep. which gets a lot of press. There's a webinar, which is basically called virtual instructor-led. And then there's the self-paced, on-demand training model. Yep. And I sort of cased it out. I looked at all the technologies, and I thought, you know, I'm going to really focus on the, on the online self-paced. Yep. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on delivering two types of training there. I'm going to deliver uh, social media literacy training, which would teach people key concepts, best practices, and uh, how-to mechanics of the different networks. I'd go, I'd train a company, they'd start using social media, they'd call me back in 18 months and they'd say, we love the social media stuff, how do we get more engagement? Mm -hmm. And there's basically two ways of, two strategies at that point. The more popular strategy, which I think most people still try to execute is, oh, well, if you want to be engaging, you just have to be amazing. Just be more amazing than the next guy. And be consistently amazing, be consistently novel, consistently unique, consistently interesting, and people will want to follow you and they'll engage with you. And, you know, most of us are engaging sometimes, and the rest of the time we're normal people. I mean, we're not all C.C. Chapman or Jay Bear. I mean, there's a few people who are like that, but the rest of us are normal people. And I think to expect everyone to be amazing is unrealistic. Yep. So, what I've always advised 
companies is I've said, well, look, if you really want to scale engagement, who is your addressable market and how can you get them involved in your conversation? Like, you know, if you're a school, yep. is it your students? Is it your faculty? If you're a company, is it your customers? Is it your resellers? If you're a B2B, is it your channel partners? But the minute you try to do that, the legal community gets upset and they say, well, you know, look, I'm fine with PR and marketing using social media because they're public disclosure professionals and they understand a public record. But I'm not comfortable letting anybody in the organization use social media. And then they say, well, you have a policy. Yeah, but nobody reads the policy. Everyone's going to get in trouble. So then I I said to myself, well, what if I could train everyone, give you an auditable record that they were trained so that if there was an investigation or dispute, you could produce that record, show it to an investigator. Would that be of interest? And most of the people said yes. So we created the social media literacy training and the social media risk and compliance training along with assessment certification to give organizations a way to scale engagement practically, a way to yep. sustain broad engagement. Yep. So, I mean, having, and I ended up taking the course on social media at events and did that with several of my colleagues and was really impressed. One of the things that really impressed me was the, what seems to me an incredible amount of investment that you put into the production of your courses. Can you talk a little bit about that? What kind of, what, right. what did you, I mean, you had, it seems like a really, you know, you're, you're in Los Angeles, so I guess you have access to a lot of Hollywood type uh, video people with lots of skills. I mean, you really put an incredible amount of work into the production. I'd love if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, well, first of all, that's exactly right. I mean, we did tap into professional production resources of which there is, you know, a lot of in Los Angeles. And we produced a product that looks like a video newscast with broadcast quality motion graphics. The baseline for for e-learning is basically a PowerPoint with voiceover. That's what most people are selling. And, you know, I looked at those products and I said to myself, in the world of Twitter, in the world of Facebook, this does not sustain my attention. Mm. And if what I need to do is just check a box and say my people have been trained, fine. But there's no meaningful knowledge transfer that's going to occur in that type of an environment. And so I really did double down and created all live action video courseware to sustain the viewer's attention. I think it's still tough, even with live action video, but the likelihood that someone's going to actually pay attention and watch the course is a much greater if they're seeing live action video. I mean, it must have been an enormous amount of time that you put into the whole production as well. No, can you talk a little bit about that? You're basically looking at about a hundred hours of production and post-production for every one hour of online course. Wow. And and if you're doing a live course, classroom course, it's about 25 hours yeah. for one hour. Wow. So it's still significant. I mean, for the boot camp, when I'm prepping a boot camp, I'm looking at two days yeah. just to update my existing courseware. So when did you actually launch Comply Socially? Comply Socially was launched January 2013. Okay. And, and what kind of feedback have you gotten from the uh, courses that you have been marketing and selling to different individuals and different organizations? So we launched with the social media literacy training. We launched with 10 classes, social media management, SEO, search engine optimization, social media monitoring, which has just been redone, by the way, because it was originally based on Google Reader. They sunsetted Reader. We redid the class based on Radiant 6, Recorded Future, Tracker, Feedly, and NetVibes. We have Facebook for Business, Twitter for Business, LinkedIn for Business. We have social media for special events and trade shows. 
we have social media policy development, we have blog training, then we have one more, I can't think of it off the top of my head. We launched with those 10 and we put those online and they're available for purchase via e-commerce. And we sold 2,000 of those classes in the first year. Wow. We also did two license deals uh, to enterprises. So we sold to a government agency. We sold 500 uh, seats to a technology company. And we did that with no sales effort because I just put up the courseware and I basically put my head down and focused on developing the risk and compliance training. And now that the risk and compliance training is out, it's just out for two weeks, by the way. We just got it up. Yep. Uh, we just brought on a sales staff and now we're starting to scale. Wow. So that must be the entrepreneur's dream when you uh, create something and you can see sales coming in when you wake up in the morning. It is, but I'll tell you, it's a lot of hard work. Sure it's it not like, you know, you just, first of all, you, you think about the fact that I added all this new, school, new coursework. That's about a thousand hours of production hours. Yeah. That's a lot of time, a lot of resource, a lot of energy, a lot of money. And now... We're first. We've got the broadest, deepest catalog of social media training in the world. And you know what? We think there's a market for it. But, you know, the jury's out. We haven't, we haven't closed any big deals yet. So, I mean, as exciting as it is, you know, there's also a great deal of uncertainty. Yep. So, you know, just, I mean, I'm talking to people who I consider my peers on this show and on the FINR network. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of opportunity. But there's also a lot of risk. Yeah. One of the things I imagine is really difficult, and you talked a little bit about when you're doing your actual trainings in person and you have the person who lags behind and holds the class hostage. So when I was doing the Comply Socially courses, there was about four or five different colleagues with different levels of social media skills. And I have to say, I think you did a great job in that, you know, every single person, regardless of their skill level, was able to get something out of it. But how do you go about putting together curriculum not knowing exactly, are you dealing with somebody who, you know, barely knows how to turn on a computer versus somebody who does, you know, community management, does social media for as part of their everyday work activities? Well, if you remember, I mean, there's a lecture at the beginning of the course yep. that tells you what the prerequisites are for the course. Yep. There's an actual lecture where I say, here's what you need to know to appreciate this course. So that sort of sets expectations. And that way, if you talk over someone's head, at least they know that the reason they're talking over their head is because they didn't take care to do what was asked of them in that first lecture. I, I think you're always better, you know, talking sort of ahead of people. I, I don't I don't think it's a good idea to to, to lower it down too much, because then you're gonna underserve the majority of the people. So I think the way you handle it is first of all, you have to realize that if you're teaching social media communications, really any sort of digital communications, you have to expect a certain level of computer fluency from the user before you start. You have to expect that they know how to use a browser. You have to expect that they know how to search. You have to expect that they know how to email a password to themselves, reset a password. You have to expect that they have a Twitter account and that they know how to log into it. So I really put that forward up front and say, look, here's what you need to know if you're going to enjoy this class. As long as they do that, they're going to be able to keep up. But if they don't, they won't. And I'll tell you, even with that, you know, on my evaluations that I get for the courses I do, there's always someone who says, oh, you know, it was terrible because... <laughs> You know, I didn't, he didn't cover this and he didn't cover that. And the truth is, you know, that's usually the, the person in the class who was holding the class hostage because they say this doesn't work, that doesn't work. But the truth is they don't even know how to reset a password or log into their Facebook. You know, we have people in this audience who are perhaps professors who 
might be considering doing some sort of online course. We might also have people who are not necessarily in higher education, but also thinking about course development. What kind of advice would you give to them on how to go about creating interesting content online versus doing it in person? What did you learn in the process of, you know, the one year and whatever other time I'm sure that you put several years into it? Well, I would imagine that, you know, if, if you're a professor, you're an academic listening to this, a higher ed person, you probably have a lot more experience than me in this area. I just sort of boned up to get ready for the production of these courses, and I'm not a PhD. I'm not, uh, you know, I don't have a master's degree. I just have a, bac- a bachelor's degree. But one of the things I did, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I love to learn. That's the favorite thing about my job. I love to learn new things. And so the idea of learning all about online education was fascinating to me. And I'm a, I'm a pretty thorough guy. I mean, I did a lot of reading. I talked to a lot of people. I learned as much as I could. And I guess what I, I heard all sorts of opinions, but the one that I sort of was able to rationalize myself as being the one, sort of the, the strategy to go with was the beautiful thing about being in the same room with someone is being able to have an exchange with that person and being able to answer that person's questions in real time and being able to participate in the process of ideation, you know, to have ideas together to bounce off each other. At the same time, you know, there's information that you have to distribute to people to get to the point where you can have that ideation. And unfortunately, a lot of that is just delivered from the lectern, which yep. is really too bad because you're dealing with someone like a professor who's really knowledgeable, who knows a lot of information. And really what you want to do is you want that person to mentor you. But you never can because there's never enough time because they're spending all their time delivering information from the lectern. And so rather than deliver a bunch of information from the lectern and then send the student home to do exercises on their own, this idea of sort of flipping the classroom yep. and sort of sending them home to get the brain dump, you know, online and then letting the classroom time be about ideation and lab work and mentoring makes a lot of sense to me. So that's kind of my rationale. So I would never put, I would never expect that a course is going to replace that ideation. Yep. I think, you know, it's a beautiful thing to be able to be in the same room with somebody But at the same time, it's not affordable in all circumstances. So like social media policy training, people say, oh, well, we have social media policy. So everyone, it's safe to use social media here. Well, no one reads a policy. They sign for it. They put it in the bottom drawer. And then the policy serves the employer if they need to fire somebody because they were acted out of school or went rogue. But it doesn't change behavior because nobody reads it. If you want people to comply with a policy, you've got to train them in what the policy is and how to respect it. So I think in that case, a self-paced social media training works really well. At the same time, if you're training the C-suite, they're not going to be served with on-demand training like that. They're going to want an expert in there to answer their questions. If you're training marketing or PR, ditto. They're going to want someone there to answer their questions and talk to them about their specific circumstances. But if what your job is to, you know, your your Subway sandwiches and you've got to train everybody in Subway sandwiches to use social media responsibly and effectively at work, well, the only way you're going to pull that off is on demand. And so, you know, that I saw that as the biggest opportunity from a dollars and cents standpoint. And that's what I'm running after. 
So let me ask you like this. So I, as I mentioned, I took the class on uh, social media at events. How would you approach teaching that in person in a PRSA event or going in somewhere around the country or around the world and doing that live in person versus doing that online, not really seeing your, your students? How, does that, how do you change your approach in terms of delivering in person versus delivering online? So when you're delivering in person, you can look at the attendees and you can customize the class to work for them. That's what I do. So if I get hired out by an organization, I'll change out all the case studies, make sure that they're relevant. I'll make sure that all the examples I use are relevant to them. Um, if it's a PRSA class and I've got someone from government and someone from private sector, I'll balance it and make sure that they're both covered. I'll even go to the websites of the attendees and try to use their websites as examples when I'm showing what to do and what not to do. Yep. Not to embarrass people, but just to make the learning more engaging. Whereas, you know, if you're doing it online, you, you have to sort of be all things to all people. You got to cast a wider net with your examples and case studies. When you go onto the Comply Socially website, you have a really cool video at the outset talking a little bit about the idea of engaging the entire organization in social media. And you've talked a little bit about that here on this show. You know, I think this is something that's really true in higher education. The more that the individuals, say the deans, the professors, the admissions directors are using social media strategically, the better. So it's not only the brand that's communicating messages. And I was wondering if you had any sort of best practice tips that you can share on how do you really engage the entire organization to use social media strategically? And what is the communications PR director's role in that process? Well, the, the, their role is to be an internal communications counselor and to identify those individuals inside the organization who are gifted at communicating in specific channels. Some people communicate through photos. Some people communicate through videos. Some people communicate through uh, the written word. So the idea is to figure out how those people are, enable and empower them, and amplify them. Because at the end of the day, no one really gives a darn what this social media or marketing person says. They care what the employee says, what the peer says. Yep. And if you look at the digital uh, trust barometer from Edelman, you see academics and um, subject matter experts have continually ranked at the top in terms of trust inside the organization. And so, you know, if you're going to do that, I think, you know, you need some sort of training to make sure that everyone has a baseline in digital literacy. And you need, I think you need it on the literacy side. I think you need it on the compliance side. Now, mind you, you're going to get some pushback on the basis of academic freedom. And that's going to be, hey, don't mess around with our academic freedom. We want to be able to teach what we want. I'm not suggesting that social media training should change what you have to say to whom about what it is you're interested in. But I am suggesting that if you're going to use social media, there are some things you should know about what's lawful and what's not. And just because you're an academic in the academic community yep. doesn't excuse you from complying with the law. I think a lot of people have learned it the hard way. <laughs> Can you talk what, real briefly about what you kind of see uh, in terms of trends in online learning? You know, there's the whole idea of MOOCs and how MOOCs are going to be changing the way higher education operates. I realize you're not an academic. You're not working exactly in the academic space. But in your experience, having done all this research and putting together a whole suite of courses online, what do you see uh, from your perspective? Well, I don't like what I see. I mean, it scares me. It scares me because, you know, I mean, I went to college and I got to go to classes and get stimulated uh, intellectually by P. 
people who were brilliant and whatever it was they said it was great man it was a great experience i loved it i got to go to the class sit in the class be in the same room and you know there was no wi-fi i didn't have a laptop i was actually able to sustain my attention on that lecture for the entire lecture and let me tell you man it was great i mean if i was independently wealthy i'd probably just go to school forever i think it's so fun the reality is, um, you know, if you look at what's happening from an economic standpoint, it's and and even what's happening with a lot of these general ed classes now that are available online, that's probably not where we're headed, and so that's too bad. Also, you know, you look at you, you see this this whole group of young people who are rejecting higher education on the basis that they don't need it. They're saying, look, you know what? A lot of what is being taught in higher ed is antiquated. And I'm already at the place I need to be. I'm a coder. I'm a developer. I'm a I'm an entrepreneur. Why spend the money? It's so expensive. So I think you know what I see. I guess my prediction is the brand names. You know the Ivies and the Cal's and the UCLA's and these brand name schools. I mean they're still going to be pinnacles. People are still going to want to go there and get those educations. But you know you look at some of the other schools. Some of maybe the the city colleges or you know the state schools, those types of schools, or the you know the for-profit universities that aren't research universities. Yep. You know, you wonder really what's going to happen to them. Are they going to go all online? Because how are they going to afford to be able to pay the bills and deliver what they do? I, I just don't know if they're going to be able to do it, and it saddens me because you know there's a whole generation of people who aren't going to be able to get into Yale and aren't going to get into Harvard. I mean, I didn't go to an Ivy. I didn't go to a big fancy school. I went to a state school. It was great. I loved it. I had a great experience. But you just wonder with the state of like, you know, uh, the state of education, the state of, uh, you know, the finances, the state of California. I mean, how the hell are we going to continue to do this anymore? So it's scary to me. It frightens me. Hmm. And I think if I was in higher ed right now and I wasn't at a big name school, I would be focused on figuring out how in the world I was going to deliver what I did with a hybrid blended model. How can I deliver some of it online and some of it in the classroom? Because I think those that's what will survive. I think this flipped classroom strategy is the future, particularly for those schools that don't have a huge endowment. It will be interesting to see. Eric, do you have anything else to add that I haven't asked you that you'd like to share with this audience? If anybody would like to check out my online training, uh, send me an email at eric at complysocially.com. I'll give you any one class for free. So just go to complysocially.com, check out the different titles, and send me an email with the title you're interested in to eric at complysocially.com. Give me the name of the course, and I'll give it to you for free. And I'm curious to hear what you think about it. Yep. And so that's exactly the offer that I took up Eric on and recommend people do that. Can't hurt. And uh, it's definitely something that was beneficial for me. Eric, thanks a million. Anything else to share in terms of where people can find you? Uh, well, just uh, at Eric Schwartzman on Twitter. Uh, you can make your request on Twitter as well or email, whatever's easier for you. And uh, thanks for having me on. Great, Eric. I really appreciate it. So there you have it, my interview with Eric Schwartzman. Hope that provided some interesting information for you if you are thinking about doing an online course at some point. And also provided some insights on what goes into the makings of an online course, even if you're not interested in actually preparing one one day. But just understand the, the future of where this might all be going.
Switching gears, I am going to do a brief book recommendation. This is not something that I've done in the past here on the show, but will do from time to time when I come across good books. And I just finished a great one, which I think uh, also has a lot of learnings for individuals within higher education. The book is titled Spin Sucks. It is written by Jeannie Dietrich. Jeannie is the CEO of Armin Dietrich. She is also a co-host of a really great podcast called Inside PR. Inside PR is on the FIR podcast network. And Jeannie has a blog, which many of you are probably familiar with, called Spin Sucks, which really offers some really good insights on what it takes to be successful in communications and public relations here in the 21st century. And the book that Ginny has written on Spin Sucks uh, just came out. It's available on Amazon for purchase. I had an advanced copy and was able to go through it a couple of weeks ago. And really there's four key points which I think are really interesting for people within higher education. And first of all, that's the understanding of the convergence of media. So understanding how paid media, earned media, owned media, and shared media have all converged and why it's important for communicators to have an understanding and grasp on all of them. You know, frankly, this is something for me that I haven't always paid attention so much to paid advertising and focus more on creating content and pitching it to the press and also working in social media. And Jeannie makes the case why it's important for communicators to understand the entire mix. And she also makes some really good points about messaging and getting away from the we are the leader of whatever industry you work in and really focusing on what is in it for the individuals and the audiences that you're dealing with it. What is in it for your clients, for your consumers, getting away from the we, we, we and focusing on the client perspective. For me, if there is an example of building community Spin Sucks is one of the ideal places. There's a really robust community of people who are involved on Jeannie's blog and who are commenting, contributing, and it's really using it as a resource for learning. And I think that's something that many of us in higher education would like to see with our blogs and our content. We would love to see our internal stakeholders, whether it's uh, individuals across the university or students themselves, or perhaps as well our alumni, be engaged in our different content. And Jeannie gives you kind of a behind the scenes glimpse into what goes into the success of Spin Suck. So there's a lot of learning in her book about what has made her blog so successful. And there's a lot that we in the higher education community can take away from her perspective. Last but not least is the whole idea of crisis communications. And I think this is something that's also really important for administrators to understand, to understand what it takes to diffuse a crisis, what it takes to prevent a crisis, the importance of transparency and communications. Jeannie outlined some really great case studies and showcases some best practice on how in 2014 we should handle different communications crises. And unfortunately in higher education, we all know that we are not immune to Uh, different difficulties that come our way as we deal with the trials and tribulations of young kids doing sometimes uh, dumb things, learning uh, the hard way. And this is just the reality of life in higher education and many other organizations for that matter. And Jeannie really offers a blueprint on how to deal with crisis communication. You can get more information by 
heading on over to the Spin Sucks website as well as going to Amazon if you're interested in purchasing the book. So wanted to give that little book recommendation before now turning it over to our technology correspondent. Here is our friend Harry Hawk. Hello, Kevin. It's Harry Hawk in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey. I wanted to talk a little bit more about what I'm doing in my Intro to Marketing class. As I mentioned a few episodes ago, I've been using Twitter in my class. If you want to see what we've been doing, it's not anything particularly exciting, but you can follow along at hashtag MKT2405. That's MKT2405. At the start of the class, I envisioned using some combination of Twitter and Facebook, but I found a lot of resistance from the students to using Facebook, and I was expecting that in some of the younger students, and I should say I have a range of students from probably 18 into their 40s. I certainly have both young students and those that are more established, have families, and have businesses. But overall, I found not only the resistance to Facebook, but even especially in, quote, the younger digital natives and millennials, really a lack of knowledge of Twitter, how Twitter might be used professionally, they might understand sort of the how a pop star might use it, or more cultural things like Carlos Danger. And they certainly lack the professional skill set across social media. That's not every student, but many of the students. Again, to recap, what I'm doing in the class is using Twitter for some sort of intellectual scavenger hunt. In the last couple of classes, we've talked about both complaint resolution and customer loyalty programs. And so the students, the students are out there investigating customer loyalty programs and complaint resolution. And it's amazing what you can find. There's millions and millions, some say a half billion tweets a day. There's a tremendous amount of particularly hospitality-related and tourism-related businesses that are communicating with Twitter, and that's I teach in the hospitality management program. So it's a particularly appropriate virtual laboratory for my students. There are a couple of points that are also interesting. One is that Twitter lets you have a history. You can look back at how a brand communicated in the past. But the flip side, the other side of that coin, is it's totally in the moment. If you want to know what's happening with the Malaysian Air flight or anything else that's going on, it's all there. But there's another twist to that. Whether it's history or live-in-the-moment communications, you have the ability to interact, if you chose, with any of the consumers and any of the brands. They don't have to message you back, but you can insert yourself into the conversation. It's an actual component of the medium. The component of the medium is that everybody can interact with everybody, that all this public message is out in the public. And as an experiment, we'll see what happened, but most of the class today tweeted Chipotle Grill, which is opening up a new location near the campus, hopefully they'll choose to interact with the class and it also this is one of many experiences where the class is really seeing how professional brands communicate and that's important I think to anybody in school today when they're learning you know the professionalism of how to act in, in, a, in a workplace how to co interact with co-workers and how to interact with customers you need to have those skills in the social medium as well. You need to know how to be professional, not only on the telephone and in person, but how to communicate professionally with Twitter and Facebook. Kevin, I hope you have a great week. Everybody, see you on Twitter at HHAWK. Thank you.
Well, thanks very much for that report, Harry. Really interesting to hear what you're up to in terms of integrating social media into your course. And please do keep us posted. I think it's interesting for you to give us a kind of running commentary throughout the semester to let us know about some of the things that you're learning and observing in terms of your social media integration with students. That's about a wrap on episode number seven of FIR on Higher Education. Feel free to head on over to the FIR Google Plus community page to get all the latest news and information about what's going on in the FIR podcast network, both in terms of new shows being posted, as well as commentary from different hosts, as well as listeners. You can also learn more about my services and my blog content through my website, experientialcommunications.com. And feel free as well to follow me on Twitter at Kevin Anselmo. We'll be back at you in a couple weeks with another episode of FIR on Higher Education. Thanks again for listening. So long for now. You've been listening to Higher Education with Kevin Anselmo on the FIR Podcast Network. Higher Education with Kevin Anselmo is brought to you in association with Lawrence Reagan Communications, serving communicators worldwide for more than 35 years. You'll find more information at www.reagan.com. That's R-A-G-A-N. Higher Education with Kevin Anselmo is part of the FIR Podcast Network, a series of business podcasts founded by Neville Hobson and Shell Holtz. The anchor podcast in the network is the Hobson and Holtz Report, a weekly show presented since January 2005. For information about FIR, to see show notes for the podcast, and to subscribe, visit www.forimmediaterelease.biz. You can also subscribe via iTunes and other podcast directories. We welcome your comments about higher education with Kevin Anselmo. Join the conversation in the FIR community on Google+. Look for the FIR podcast community or email us at fircomments at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.